This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. As citizens of the United States, we have been blessed with certain rights handed down to us by our forefathers through the Constitution. But that hasn't always been the case for businesses in this country. In fact, businesses trying to gain many of the same rights as citizens has been a fight that goes back, believe it or not, a couple of centuries. A new book looks at that struggle by companies. It is titled, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. The author is UCLA Law Professor Adam Winkler, and he joins us on the show right now. Adam, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Thank you. Uh, I will throw the big question at you right out of the box. Should corporations have the same rights as American citizens? Well, this has become a really big controversy since the Citizens United case in 2010 held that corporations have the same free speech right as people to spend money on elections. Uh, and uh, the court has, Supreme Court has handled a, a number of big, high-profile cases dealing with the constitutional rights of corporations. I think when we look back at the history, what we find is that, yes, corporations should have many of the same rights as individuals. They need, for instance, protections for their property rights. They need due process protections against being charged with criminal offenses um, uh, without good basis in law. Um, at the same time, they probably don't need all the same rights as individuals. And what's so controversial in recent years is that the Supreme Court has extended things like political speech to corporations and even religious liberty to big companies like Hobby Lobby. And obviously this is an idea that's been tossed around by, by so many different organizations uh, around the country up to now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it turns out that uh, in terms of pursuing constitutional rights, something that corporations do so that they can fight back against certain kinds of unwanted regulation, that battle's been going on for a long, long time. Like women and minorities, who were also left out of the original promise of we the people, corporations have been fighting for 200 years to gain equal rights under the Constitution. And they don't do it by marching in the street, and they don't risk their lives the way civil rights protesters did. Right. They have fought uh, a very determined effort in the Supreme Court to win landmark rulings, extending our most fundamental protections to them. Take us back, and since this is a great look at history, take us back to some of the early instances of, uh, of corporations, of companies, really fighting for their civil rights? Well, I mean, uh, to put it in some perspective, the first Supreme Court case on the rights of African Americans wasn't decided until 1857. The first Supreme Court case on the rights of women was in 1873. But the first Supreme Court case on the rights of business corporations was decided in 1809, a half century earlier. Uh, and whereas women and minorities lost many of their early cases, corporations uh, won that first case back in 1809 and have uh, put together a pretty remarkable string of victories ever since. Uh, and they've used the Constitution to fight back against any number of laws. Back in 1809, it was uh, fighting against a tax imposed on the Bank of the United States by the state of Georgia. Uh, but in the 1880s, it was the Southern Pacific Railroad fighting against uh, special tax rules on them. Uh, in the 1930s, it was newspaper companies fighting against censorship. It's just been a long history of corporations seeking constitutional protection. Is it surprising to you that we have had this history where businesses have had advantages for years, where actual citizens of the United States did not have them? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, take a good case like this 1809 case I mentioned. The Supreme Court held that corporations had a constitutional right to sue in federal court. 
uh, and uh, the provision of the Constitution that they said the Supreme Court said covered corporations uh, was a promise that citizens had a right to sue in federal court. And the court said corporations were covered by that, too. Uh, in the Dred Scott case, uh, 50 years later, the Supreme Court said African Americans could not be citizens under the exact same provision of the Constitution. So in many ways, corporations have often won rights that minorities and, um, uh, and, and women were denied. And and so you bring up the the uh, the idea of corporate personhood, which I guess to a degree is, is playing off of these early uh, successes that that corporations had in terms of, of going to the Supreme Court and and winning uh, in court cases uh, to be able to get these rights. That's right. I mean, every uh, corporate lawyer and business person understands the idea that corporate personhood is is a very old established legal principle and it just merely says that a corporation is its own independent entity in the eyes of the law with its own legal rights and its own legal obligations wholly separate from the rights and obligations of the people who form the corporation that's why we have limited liability and why uh, shareholders can't be held personally responsible for the debts of the corporation because the shareholders and the corporation are separate legal persons what's become so controversial is that the supreme court has used that idea um, in, in some instances, to expand the rights of corporations under the Constitution. Um, and some have said that this enables corporations to exercise many of the rights of citizens without having all of the same responsibilities of citizens. Well, it's interesting. You, it, it's noted in the book uh, that uh, you talk about, you know, obviously, when, when you talk about the history of, of this country, and obviously prior to it, the land that was here, obviously a lot of people think about the pilgrims uh, and what they did in terms of kind of really setting the stage for what we know as our uh, United States today. But again, you give just as much credence and, and maybe even more to the corporations that really kind of got things rolling as well. That's right. We tend to think of the pilgrims as the embodiment of sort of American ideals, and they were sort of at the heart of our origin story, them landing at Plymouth Rock trying to exercise political freedom and fight against tyranny. But America was really founded, uh, if you will, by uh, uh, the English in an earlier colony, 15 years before Plymouth, which was down in Jamestown. And it was a corporate affair run by one of England's first joint stock corporations, the Virginia Company of London. And it was a business venture designed to make money. Uh, and long before colonists came here seeking political and personal and religious freedom, uh, corporations were on this shore seeking profit, and if we want to understand some of the key sort of introductions of democracy into America, like the first representative assembly uh, and things like that, they were done not out of some liberal belief that we need to uh, have a more progressive society. They were done as business ventures to try to encourage people to move to the United States, yeah. or sorry, to, the, to America, um, uh, and they were, again, done for reasons of profit, not politics. We are joined by uh, Adam Winkler, who's a law professor at UCLA. He is the author of the book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, a good look at history and corporations going back a couple of hundred years. Your comments are welcome on the phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. It's interesting because... Uh, 
we have such a, in many cases, we have a, a strong remembrance of our history. Obviously, here in Philadelphia, we see it quite often. If you go down uh, to uh, Independence Mall with the Liberty Bell uh, and the Constitution Center as well, uh, is enough remembered, though, on the path that many of these corporations have really been able to to take to be able to kind of set that pattern. Obviously, I think, as you kind of alluded to, the Supreme Court has helped that case, but is, is enough remembered about how corporations have really helped this process out? Well, I don't think so. And part of the reason why I wrote this book was because there were so many fascinating stories about our Constitution that involved corporations that just rarely get told. We tend to focus on um, uh, the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement or gay rights or free speech without recognizing the important role that corporations have played as innovators in constitutional law. So one of the things I argue in the book is not only that corporations have been seeking individual rights for 200 years, but they've also been innovators in constitutional, litiga- constitutional litigation, helping yeah. to breathe life into um, uh, various constitutional provisions by bringing landmark lawsuits uh, and also being innovators in civil rights litigation strategies. Uh, you mentioned the mall in Philadelphia. I was there earlier this week speaking at the National Constitution Center, and one of the things I noticed when I was standing at the mall is on one end is Independence Hall, yep. and the other end is uh, the National Constitution Center. A- and between them, we find uh, uh, the, uh, the headquarters of Dow Chemical. Uh, we find a Wells Fargo building, yep. and we see that the separation between the Constitution and the Constitution Center uh, is really um, a pathway marked by corporations. And I thought it was a good symbolism uh, of the important role that corporations Corporations have played in shaping our constitutional law. Well, and it's also interesting that you bring up the fact that uh, a lot of times in these corporate fights or you know corporate battles uh, that you have uh, documented that have played out over the over the centuries, that a lot of times what the corporations did to win their rights ended up being kind of a path or an opening for how organizations like the NAACP or other gay rights uh, movement. Uh, uh, organizations have used in years since then. That's right. So, for instance, uh, in recent years, we've seen uh, organizations, especially in the gay rights community, um, put together all-star team, uh, sort of dream teams, if you will, of lawyers like uh, Ted uh, Olson and David Boyes teaming up to fight against um, uh, the ban on same-sex marriage in California. Well, the Southern Pacific Railroad did that over 130 years ago uh, yeah. in fighting for expansive rights under the 14th Amendment for corporations, hiring an all-star team of lawyers, the best lawyers in the country, to make very innovative, novel claims. And the Southern Pacific Railroad, like, this, like the NAACP years later, filed a series of test cases, more than 60 of them in all, trying to seek constitutional protections. And indeed, as I said earlier, uh, the corporations were innovators, breathing life into some of our basic constitutional provisions. Some of the earliest and most important cases, breathing life into the constitutional principles of equal protection and due process and freedom of the press, were all invigorated and established in cases involving businesses. Obviously, you you have mentioned uh, the the role that the Supreme Court has had, but what about individual justices throughout the years on the court and the role that they probably have played in this? 
Well, one of the fun things that I found in writing the book is that it was really also a story of really fascinating lawyers and justices who yeah. really reshaped the law. And so uh, great lawyers like Daniel Webster, one of the great advocates in Supreme Court history, who argued many early corporate rights cases in the Supreme Court, and justices that were very surprising, from Roger Tawney, who is a reviled figure in the history of the court for his Dred Scott opinion, but he was also a corporate reformer who wanted to limit the rights of corporations. And then in the 1970s, Lewis Powell, who wrote the famous Powell Memorandum that helped sort of reinvigorate the political mobilization of business, uh, then went beca and became a Supreme Court justice, where on the Supreme Court he was able to issue rulings that expanded, for instance, the political speech rights and commercial mm -hmm. speech rights of business corporations. Again, the book is We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA, is the author of the book, and he is our guest right now. And again, the way for you to join in is either by phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So if you think back of the times of the revolution, and obviously you have the revolution and it kind of melds right into the Constitution. How did the corporations of those days really kind of impact that period of time, that, that 20 to 30 year window? Well, they really did have a big impact on the revolution. First of all, the revolution was in part uh, inspired by anger about big corporations. Uh, think of the, the Stamp Act that led to, um, or the Tea Act that led to the famous Boston Tea Party. Um, we think of that as a protest against the British government, but the colonists were also protesting against a big corporation, the most powerful corporation in the world at the time, the, right. the East India Company that was responsible for importing tea into the colonies. Um, and uh, the, the colonists were very upset that the British government had passed a huge bailout of the East India Company. And the reason why they went that day and threw that tea overboard, because it was the tea of the East India Company, and they wanted yeah. to protest how the East India Company had gotten this special bailout. Um, uh, and so corporations did help inspire the revolution, and in many ways corporations shaped the Constitution. The framers didn't think about corporations when they were writing the Constitution, but the written document that they proposed to the states had a lot of, in, was influenced very heavily by the early corporate charters of the original American colonies that, as I mentioned, were set up as business corporations. The amazing thing is, is that, you know, when you think about the Constitution coming into being, uh, and we're talking, you know, 200 and, you know, 30 odd some years ago, uh, it has remained intact uh, as it was written all those years ago. And we have had, obviously, unbelievable change in our country, un unbelievable innovation, and, you know, so many different things that have occurred in the United States. Uh, the question, I guess, is, is the Constitution something that is, can it stay as, as intact for decades and decades to come? Or, you know, is it something that with all the change that we have seen and the impact from corporations that maybe we need to look at it moving forward? Uh, well, there's certainly questions about what kind of uh, constitutional reform we could use in America. The Constitution doesn't work perfectly, to be sure, but it has remained largely the same. We've had some major amendments that, of course, have shifted some of its values and priorities, uh, to be sure. But one of the geniuses of the Constitution is that even if it wasn't written to protect, for instance, women and minorities in the same way it was written to protect white people, um, women and minorities have managed to 
use that Constitution to win equal citizenship and to win those uh, important rights that people have. Um, and, and that's a story we celebrate, um, but there's also a story of corporations seeking those protections. And uh, one could make the argument that part of the reason why we've had the success that we've had as a capitalist country are at least in part due to the is at least in part due to um, the success of corporations winning constitutional rights. And, and I don't think there's much doubt that when you when you talk about cases like Citizens United and Hobby Lobby, that you know obviously they have had unbelievable impact uh, when they came forward, and that we will continue to see these instances of cases similar to these whatever the issue may particularly be, continue to see these cases come forward, work their way through the court system, and probably end up in uh, the Supreme Court to get a final ruling. Well, and there's a big one currently pending before the Supreme Court today that could have a huge impact on gay rights, and that's yep. a question about, case about a Colorado bakery that refused yep. to provide a custom-made cake for a same-sex couple that was seeking to get married. Um, and although uh, that uh, case has engendered a spirited public debate about the rights of expression and religion of the baker, uh, the case is called Masterpiece Cake Shop. That is, it's named after the business. And it's really the business that's been ordered by the state of Colorado to provide uh, equal services for LGBT people. If the Supreme Court says businesses don't have to provide those equal services, that could lead to uh, increasing discrimination by businesses in the public realm and in the marketplace against same-sex couples. Which, in that case, it really goes to show that it doesn't really matter the size of the corporation that could potentially be involved uh, in the, these types of litigation. Obviously, a cake shop, you're talking about you know, a few employees, maybe a couple of owners, in comparison to you know, some of the companies that have involved, well, Hobby Lobby, to be exact, to be exact uh, the, you know, a massive company like that. That's right. The Masterpiece Cake Shop case is unusual in the story that I found about the history of constitutional rights for corporations in that it is a very small corporation. And the story of constitutional rights for corporations has really been one that's been led by some of America's biggest and most powerful corporations across American history. And we often think of the Supreme Court as a bulwark for the protection of powerless minorities. Um, but if we look back at the history of corporate rights, at least, we can see that often the Supreme Court has used its power of judicial review on behalf of some of the most wealthy, powerful, and politically influential interests in the country. You talk in the book about Ralph Nader, and I wanted to, to take a minute or two to talk about him. And obviously, he is a, a very influential person when you think about uh, court cases and, and, and rights, uh, obviously, over the last uh, 40 years or so. Take us into the, the, the work that he has done and how he has intentionally or unintentionally laid the groundwork for some of these corporate rights decisions. Well, that's right. One of the ironies I find is that often progressive reformers who tried to limit corporate power uh, have uh, actually promoted reforms that ended up helping big corporations. So Ralph Nader is a perfect example. In the 1970s, Ralph Nader, who was a big consumer rights advocate, was representing um, some people who wanted to get uh, who were consumers of drug prices. They had prescription drug uh, prescriptions for drugs, and they couldn't comparison shop to find the cheapest version of that drug because uh, there were laws that restricted the ability of pharmacies to 
advertise drug prices. And Nader takes a case to the Supreme Court on behalf of these consumers, saying these consumers should have access to this information. This law is unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court agrees and adopts a theory of the First Amendment that says speech, if it's valuable to the listeners, is protected regardless of the identity of the speaker. Uh, and that is the same principle that the court would invoke, for instance, in Citizens United, yeah. to say that um, uh, the political speech funded by corporations is valuable to the listeners, so it doesn't matter that it was funded by a corporation. It's still protected by the First Amendment. Do we see the same types of, of individuals like you mentioned, like Ralph Nader, like uh, Thurgood Marshall? Do we see those types of individuals today uh, as being the leaders uh, in terms of kind of laying the groundwork for, for some of these corporations? Um, well, I, I think that uh, we probably don't necessarily see those people as leaders uh, in setting the groundwork for corporations, uh, but it's perhaps because we just haven't looked closely enough. You know, one of the things I find, uh, earlier we mentioned that corporations are great innovators in constitutional law, yeah. often first movers in civil rights litigation and in invigorating particular constitutional rights, but corporations are also great leveragers. They're also sure. able to use progressive reforms to pursue the ends of capital and of business. And the story of corporate rights is a, really a story of corporations taking advantage of liberal reforms uh, like Ralph Nader's listeners' rights theory of the First Amendment to promote the ends of business. Adam, great having you with us on the show today. It's an incredible piece of American history that you've uh, put together here. Thank you very much for your time, and we, we uh, wish you all uh, great with the book. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Thank you, Adam. The book, again, is We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Adam Winkler, professor of law at UCLA, uh, is the author of the book, and uh, it is available in bookstores and online now uh, for your purchase. If you are a fan of history like I am, it's really uh, interesting look, uh, maybe a little bit of a different angle on American history uh, than maybe some of you think about normally, but it is a really good uh, look at uh, the history of corporations in America. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.